So there's something that's been on my heart. And I'm a firm believer that when God puts something on your heart, you need to get in his word. You need to get in prayer. There's a picture that I'm going to ask Stacy to put up here in a second. So there's a question when it comes to churches, what makes a church successful? What makes a church thrive? What makes a church grow? I know that it's Jesus Christ. But I know as a body that when I have seen church families operating in authenticity, when I've seen them operating in passion, that draws something. It's taking what we say we believe to the next level. Today I want to talk about being undone. If there is a picture that would describe passion, I think it would be this. It's from, give me this next one, Stace. This was from VBS. These are the Bowmans. And they are passionate. And <laughs> so there's that question, what makes a worshiper? And today I want to talk about that. I'm going to bring a few, uh, few Bible passages forward. I'm going to talk about them. I'm not going to dig too deep into a couple that you're like, why don't you stay there? So I'm sorry to disappoint you if that's what you're wanting, but I'm going to try to pull some things out today. You can't talk about worship without talking about Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read the first five verses. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. He was high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, whenever I would read this, I would be so taken with Isaiah's response. You know, he says, I'm ruined. Another translation says, I am undone. I have shared with you personally that when I am considering the gospel, whenever the gospel comes up lately, it destroys me. I feel like David must have felt in 1 Chronicles 17, 16. Then King David went in, he sat before the Lord and he said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? I think of Isaiah. But then my attention turns to these seraphs. 
Right? We live in this culture that when we consider angels, we think they look like precious moments cherubs, and it's all cute, you know, and each one of them has this little diaper on, and they each have their harp. And, like, that's how we tend to think of this. But these were powerful, heavenly creatures. They were accustomed to heavenly settings. When they get in the presence of God Almighty, all they can do is to cover up and to cry out to one another. They were created to worship. And so when I read this, it makes sense that they would react that way because they're created to worship. But then the spotlight comes on me because I was created with the same mandate. When it comes to worship, it's the kind of thing that defines who we are as people who call themselves believers. In Hebrews 2 and 7, you need to understand that your worship is a powerful thing. It says that you were made just a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, and set over the works of God's hands. Now, thinking of that... Your praise matters. Your praise is necessary. It's time to stop holding back praise, saving it for a rainy day, and it's time to throw down. You will never reach a point where God Almighty doesn't deserve and expect your praise. There's never a high where you're past it and never a low where you're below it. What I love is how they yelled out to one another. I love that for the past few Sundays when I have come in, people have come up to me and they've been telling me what God's done. They've been saying things. And you may think, well, we should do that. But we don't do it a lot. And it blesses me. They yell out to one another. Hey, Laverne, yell out something to me. What has God done? Her son is walking again. If that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. God is good. See, and we need as people to be doing that. We need to be bouncing that off of one another and saying the great things that God is doing. So I read this, and I'm thinking, why in these verses do the doorposts shake? Why does the threshold shake? Like, why is that happening? And in my heart, I feel like God is saying, You have walked through those doors in the old way for too long. I'm getting ready to shake it. I'm getting ready for you to not even feel comfortable because you don't know what I'm going to do, and that's how it should be in God's house. It's not coming in just to, you know, business as usual, but it's coming to a place where God's doing a shaking, and it's not a shaking to scare you. It's a shaking to shake the old things off. I like how it says there was smoke that filled the room. Because you know what I learned at a young age when it came to smoke in school? If there was ever smoke in a room, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to get low. And what I love is the fact that when God's presence is there, he's calling for you and I to get low. He's calling for us in humility to find our spot and to get with him. A stop, drop, and roll spiritually, if you will. I've learned lessons, right? There's this other this other Bible account in Luke chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, about these two women, one named Mary and one named Martha. 
But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came up to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. When Jesus is in the midst, it's time to stop worrying about the details. When we come into this house, all the things that weighed on your mind prior to this point need to be set aside because the right thing to do is to sit down with Jesus. The bottom line when it comes to worship, it doesn't start when we arrive here on Sunday morning. It doesn't start when the timer hits zero at 1031. It starts when we wake up that morning. And we have a choice to say, I'm going to complain or I'm going to praise Jesus. It starts the night before when you fall asleep counting your blessings and waking up to the glory of God. It starts throughout the week when it's a lifestyle and not something we expect just to happen on a Sunday. Here's what's wild. Some of us are Martha. We got a lot going on. You know, even the Son of God knew that in that situation, that in order for a meal to be prepared, someone would need to do that. He knew that a good host or hostess would want everything to be perfect when he came around. So I say to everyone here who has all of these things on their plate, Jesus knows. Like with Martha, Jesus knew. It's not like he was condemning her. He just had to remind her what he was there for. I'm not here to do a white glove test to make sure there's no dust on the knickknacks. What I'm here to do is to spend time with the two people I came to spend time with. And that's how he is today. We get into this formality where we try to make everything perfect, but he has moved among imperfect people for how long, and he's looking to do it again. Jesus knows. Praise isn't a luxury item. Don't get mad at me for what I'm about to say. (laughs) Whenever the story of Mary and Martha is told, we tend to put ourselves in one category. We think that we're a Martha who's busy doing things for Jesus or a Mary who is busy sitting at his feet. In the family of God, Sometimes we can come to the point where we don't lift our hand to serve Jesus or we don't lift our hand to praise Jesus. That's not passion. I say that because I've been in that place many times. I paint a better picture of myself spiritually than the weak may represent me really being. For the church to grow, there must be passion. Participation will require all of us. What's that look like? Deuteronomy 6.5, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. My worship should reflect my faith. Those seraphs didn't show up in Isaiah 6 and say to one another, what do you want to do today? I don't know. What do you want to do? How are you feeling today? I don't know how you feeling. They just start calling out to God because that was the natural thing that would flow forth from them. Never in the Bible do I read to love God sometimes. I don't read to love him when I have nothing else to do. 
you know, I turn it into, like as I'm studying this, you know what I'm picturing? I'm picturing like Michael Jackson, young Michael Jackson with the Jackson 5. Like that's what I do to God sometimes. Like they're sitting over there singing, I'll be there. And I'm like, okay, God, if I need you, I gotcha. Like that's what I tend to do. And it's not like that. I need to give him everything. When worship becomes a lifestyle, there will be no part of your life that is not covered in God's glory. I like a good Big Mac. And now they have the app. And you can hit like extra sauce and extra, extra sauce. And like I get so much sauce on my Big Mac that everybody in the restaurant knows what I got because it's on me, it's on the table, I'm walking in it. And that's the way I want the glory of God to be. I want people to not wonder what's been going on because I'm covered in it when I walk around. I want to track it out of here, and I want it to be something that I could roll around in. It needs to be a house where God's proclamation fills the air, and it needs to be a place where our tears cover the ground because we realize who he is. I can choose to attend, but attendance doesn't automatically mean worship. Let me repeat. My presence does not equal worship. My presence does not equal participation. You may have noticed when you came in a small sign on the wall that said, leave your shame at the door. I some days walk in and don't see shame, but I just have a blank there. And it's, I need to leave my worry at the door. I need to leave my stress at the door. I need to leave what's weighing me down at the door. And especially on a Sunday, because God is aware. Martha, he knows. And he expects me to walk in and praise him still. And this is how I want to be in his presence. I was created to worship. In the sunshine and in the rain, I was created to worship God. There's a great blessing when we all come together to worship. Corporate worship is important. And often when you talk about corporate worship, people will throw down with Hebrews 10.25. Just the first part, usually people say, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Or let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we'll say. What we skip is the other part. God just doesn't throw a rule down, but God has a why with it. When we come together, here's what happens. Second part of verse 25, let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Verse 24, right before, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. This is why we're coming together. I just watched a movie the other night, and I couldn't help but think how it is when God's people come together. It was the movie Glory. It was from 1989. It was a movie about the first all-African-American regiment, the Massachusetts 54th, who would be going into battle during the Civil War. It was composed of all free men who made the decision to go into this army knowing that if they were captured, their fate would be worse than if they would have just been enslaved. But they went forward anyway. And during this movie, they come to a battle place. And when they come to the place in the battle, the cannons are going off. People are dropping. It is terrible. And as they're there in the sand, they look to one another for the encouragement and the strength that comes when the army comes together. I say that because as the army of God, there are times that I, as a leader, need to look to my side and see that someone who has gone through the ringer that week has their hand up worshiping beside me. 
that someone whose life could be considered painful, a train wreck at times, will stand and hot tears run down their face because they are acknowledging who Jesus Christ is. I need to see that. That's what the army does for one another. Attendance is not worship. During the mid-90s, the greatest baseball team to ever step on the field, the Cleveland Indians of that era, they played. At a high point, Todd may even know this figure, the attendance record was 45,274. And what's amazing is when I would go to some of those games, one of my favorite players, Jim Tomey, right? Left-handed hitter, he would get up, and remember, he would get there at the plate. And when he'd be there at the plate, he would, do, he would do that thing where he'd point out, you know, it was just, and then he'd plant in. That's what he did. And the pitch would come, and he would hammer it. And I was at one game where he hit it, and you're thinking, is it going to go out of the ballpark? And what's wild is after he hit it, he did not get in the announcer's booth and be like, Bob Meredith. I know you're out there. Thank you for helping me. No, the guy was as big as a horse, and when he got a hold of the ball, it was flying. Attendance does not mean participation on my part. There are times when I will go shop for my artichokes at Walmart, and they won't have artichokes, and I will go over to Heinen's. And when I walk in Heinen's, they don't say, hello, sir, thank you for worshiping with us today. No, like we get into this thing where we think walking in is worshiping, but it is not. It is simply, that's the first step along the way. And so I've been saying to God, God, teach me. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated because I want to worship you the way you want me to worship you. God, teach me. Now, Isaiah shows me how to be undone. He shows me how to proclaim. Mary and Martha show me how to put it down, whatever it is. But worship 101 is to recognize. In 1 Samuel 4, 5, when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back, it says that all Israel raised such a shout that the ground shook. In Ezra 3, 11, when the foundation of God's house had been laid, it said, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to God. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. We need to find our shout as a church. We need to find it. Here's something. If you are ever standing behind me in church and you want to shout for something that God has done, I'm never going to turn around and be like, what are you doing? I am done with the formality of thinking I have to be quiet about what God has done. Psalm 47.1. In the good times, clap your hands, all you nations, shout to God with a voice of triumph. When it rains, Psalm 28, 2, hear my cry for mercy as I call out to you for help. I lift my hands. There are going to be times that I lift my hands in this house when it is the greatest week I have ever had. And there's going to be times that you see my hand up because I feel like my heart has been ripped out of my chest and I'm holding it up as close to God. as I can get it. Psalm 134, 2 says, lift your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. This is a sanctuary. 
How does it look? It may look like kneeling. Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. It may look like standing. Exodus 3, 5. Moses is told the place where you are standing is holy ground. Psalm 119, 120 says, I stand in awe of your law. It may look like dancing. Psalm 150. Praise him with the tambourine and dancing. Now, that wasn't just for Wren McCormick in Footloose so he could have a dance. Right? I mean, everybody from the 80s is like, yep, Ren, he sure stood up for the Lord. No, he wanted to have a high school dance. We're saying it because Jesus has done things. And sometimes I have seen some people cut a rug in church, and I know what they're dancing to. Psalm 30, 11. You have turned my wailing into dancing, and you clothe me with joy. All of me, just like Deuteronomy says it should be. I want my worship to be acceptable. I want to be reminded when I'm here that I do not hold a candle to what Hebrews 12:28 says, my God is a consuming fire. I can attend, I can participate. But you know what's funny? I've worked with young people at times, and at Winterfest, it's funny. When they stay up all night and it's time to worship, you'll see some of them like this in their chair. They'll be like, yeah, my hand up leaning on each other. Like, we can do that in church, right? You can blend into the crowd. There was a time when we were young, and they told me this. If you ever don't know the words and you're in a choir, you sing watermelon, watermelon a couple times, and no one knows that you don't know the words. We can do this in church. But God sees your heart. I'm going to close. Here's the why. Because in John 14, 26, I read Jesus speaking, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. And these three words, and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Because the Holy Spirit's moving, I can't help but be reminded. Reminded of what, you may say. That the God I serve exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That he spoke into nothing and everything came into being. That he had a plan from the beginning. That he is a God who saw in the pit, and he's a God who saw someone wearing a crown in the palace, that he's a God who shuts the door of the ark, he's the fourth man in the fire, he's a God who provides protection. He's a God who befriends shepherd boys when everybody else looks down on him. He is a redeemer, he is a healer. His promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when it reminds me, when I get in a spot, I can't help but say, Jesus, you are worthy. And again, and again. And when I tend to forget the Holy Spirit in his power, just like that Acts chapter 2 church reminds me, he gives me understanding, he gives me vibrancy, and he reminds me that there is a work to do and the clock is ticking. Worship, it's a basic response of a heart that has been changed by Jesus, then and now. When I respond to him, I'm responding to his presence. I'm responding to the one who inhabits the praises of his people. 
I'm responding to the one who holds it all together. I end with this, Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things held together. I need to say as a pastor that here's not what I'm looking at. I don't want us looking apart. I want our hearts to be reflecting Jesus Christ, and I want our worship to follow that. I'm not looking around and like, oh man, so it should look like this should. No, the Bible says what it should look like. But as a church, in order to go to the places that God is asking us to go, passion in worship must be a mark of who we are. If you'll stand. I'm just going to pray with you. Right after I do, I'm going to be dedicating some children to the Lord. One of my favorite things. But if you bow your heads, let's pray. Father, let this be a house of prayer. And let this be a house that is marked by worship. Let us as your people never cease to tell one another of the things that you are doing. And Father, when we hear what you're doing, let us be reminded that you are not done yet. You are the same God. And Lord, I pray your blessing over your people. I pray for everyone in here who is carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. Father, you can lighten that load. And Lord, I pray your hedge of protection about us. In Jesus' name, amen.